You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. My name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. And today we're going to do something a little bit different. We are entering into a season when there are many different church denominations that are having meetings where they decide um, policies for their denominations. It's their annual time to come together. And uh, we had several weeks ago an interview with Matt Kennedy about what happened at GAFCON with the Anglican Communion. And we thought we would um, pay attention to some other denominations that are going to be dealing with issues that overlap with uh, things we're concerned about here at CBMW. We're talking about gender and sexuality, and it turns out some um, some of these denominations are going to be dealing with those things. It's on their agenda. So we know the PCA has some items before it. We hope to maybe get somebody from the PCA on to interview them in the near future about what's happening there. Uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance has been in the news recently with their decision to allow uh, ordination of female pastors. Maybe it's associate pastors. We'll get some clarity on that hopefully at some point. Um, but we're right now we're getting ready next week for the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is going to be meeting in New Orleans, Louisiana. And there, too, there's going to be some issues that directly overlap with the issues we're concerned about here at CBMW, which are gender and sexuality. And you and I, Colin, are both Southern Baptists, so we're going to be talking about this a little bit today. We won't have a guest. We're just going to do this ourselves because uh, this is our denomination, and this is... Um, uh, obviously something that we're paying close attention to. And there are a number of issues that are coming before the, the denomination. We're not going to talk about all of them, but uh, we do want to talk about the ones that um, over overlap with the Danvers Statement and the Nashville Statement, which are our uh, confessional identity here at CBMW. And um, so Southern Baptists are going to be dealing with the issue of women pastors, in a couple of different ways. Which I find remarkable because, as you just mentioned, the Christian and Missionary Alliance is having the exact, almost parallel conversation at their denominational meeting earlier this year. So we're Southern Baptists, as you said. Uh, We have listeners that are not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. We have some listeners that are part of the Southern Baptist Convention that maybe have not been paying attention to the issues like we have. Can you set up what exactly is going to be before the convention next week in terms of the issue of women pastors? Yeah, there's a couple of items that are more or less front and center. The one that's really in the news right now that everybody's paying attention to is, of course, the status of Saddleback Church in uh, Southern California. Their famous former pastor is Rick Warren, and they they have ordained um, three female associate pastors uh, two or three years ago, And then they brought, when Rick Warren stepped down and resigned, they brought in as his replacement a husband and wife team, one who's lead pastor and the other who's the teaching pastor, so the wife's a teaching pastor there at the church. And then recently they appointed a woman to lead one of their church campuses, their multi-site church. Hmm. And so a woman is a a pastor over one of their, their campuses. And so they've been making the case that, look, you know, pastor, it's totally an appropriate office for a woman to hold, which goes against what um, the Southern Baptist Convention holds to. So our beliefs are summed up in the Baptist Faith and Message, 
which says that while both men and women are gifted for ministry and need to be serving in ministry, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. So earlier this year, um, um, our Southern Baptist Credentials Committee, which oversees um, challenges to membership within the Southern Baptist Convention, um, they decided that Saddleback was in violation of this. And they decided this on behalf of several other churches as well on the same issue. Um, but in our structure, you're allowed to appeal that. And so the committee decided to remove Saddleback from friendly cooperation with the convention and uh, some other churches. And two of those churches are being removed for having female pastors, and then two of them are are, are going, going to be appealing. Actually, there's more that are being removed for that reason, but only two of them are going to be appealing to be reinstated, and Saddleback is one of them. I want to ask a question about that because it seems like one of the arguments Warren is making is that this is sort of a top-down, heavy-handed situation, and it doesn't involve the messengers. Like, the executive committee is becoming some sort of magisterium within the Southern Baptist Convention, apart from the will of the messengers. Is that really the case here? No, it's not. And just for those who are unfamiliar with the Southern Baptist Convention, when we have our annual meeting every year, we don't send representatives to the convention. The churches will send what we call messengers. And so the messengers come from the churches, and they're the ones who do the voting and the deciding at the convention. And so, yeah, Rick Warren has been saying that, you know, the credentials committee removed their church and that this is some kind of an action that's happening apart from the will of the messengers, the actual voting members. That's not really the case because the structure that led to Saddleback's removal was a structure that the messengers voted for and set up. And, um, and not that long ago, actually. So it, um, I, th- I think as recently as 2015 is when some of these changes came in. So the messengers were responsible for that structure. And then also the structure itself allows for an appeal directly to the messengers, uh, directly to the convention. And he's going to be there um, to make the case in front of the messengers and the messengers will weigh in on this. So it's not, it's really misleading to say that this is done apart from the will of the messengers or that it's just some sort of a heavy handed top down thing. No, this will at the end of the day be very much a grassroots bottom up decision on the part of the, the convention. It seems like what Warren's strategy is or has been to this point is to throw a bunch of arguments and to see which one sticks. So, you know, he's making this procedural argument about, well, is it really the will of the messengers or is this the executive committee? But then he's also trying to make this parallel case that there's a theological reason or a doctrinal reason for why the Southern Baptist Convention uh, at least should allow him to, in his church, to have women pastors, if not the whole convention. And, you know, there was this podcast that happened earlier between, I think, Russell Moore was interviewing Rick Warren. He was laying out these theological reasons. It seemed like one of the main ones he was pivoting around was the what Jesus says in the Great Commission and why that has, you know, theological warrant for ordaining pastors. What do you make of Warren's argument there? Yeah, he's making the case that, you know, the Great Commission says, go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples of every nation— baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And so Warren is picking up on that part of the Great Commission, which says that you need to go out and teach. And 
because the Great Commission is given to all Christians, therefore all Christians are supposed to be teaching. Therefore, um, we need to obey the Great Commission, and we don't need to interpret texts like 1 Timothy 2.12, which says, I don't allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Um, we're going to have to interpret those some other way because they're coming into conflict with the Great Commission. So he doesn't really resolve the tension that he says he's seeing in the Bible. He just says, if I see two things in the Bible that appear to be contradictory, I just obey both of them. Even if they're telling him to do two different things, apparently, uh, he's just going to obey both of them and then try to try to work it out. And he sees this as a, you know, an apparent contradiction, and so he's going to obey the Great Commission, and he wants to deploy women to, you know, to teach. Um, now, the problem with his interpretation there is that, well, first of all, the Great Commission was given initially to the the apostles. That's right. Um, which, which you don't, which were obviously all men. Now, we do believe that the Great Commission is for the church beyond the apostles because it talks about baptizing them, right, and going to every nation. So that that is conceiving of a time beyond the apostles, but it was initially given to the, to the apostles. Um, but, but even so that, that, that doesn't really matter because we, we all believe that women are supposed to be a part of the great commission and making disciples of every nation. Nobody, no complementarian that I know thinks any different from that. <laughs> um, we, we all believe that all disciples are called to be a part of this work. What we're talking about is church office. And just because all Christians are called to take part in the Great Commission doesn't mean that all Christians are called to be pastors, right? So I, I wouldn't say that... I think my children are called to be a part of the Great Commission. They've all professed faith in Christ. They have a role in the Great Commission. They have a role in um, making disciples of all the nations. But I don't think any of them are qualified to be pastor. Right, that that's not their calling. So just being, you know, called to do the work of the Great Commission doesn't make you qualified to be a a pastor. But that seems to be the argument that he's making. I think it's a pretty novel argument. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been paying attention to the the debate between complementarians and egalitarians for a long time, and that's a pretty new one. Um, that's not not one that I've. I've really heard before, and I think the reason for that is because it's not very really compelling, and nobody really thinks thinks that that the Great Commission establishes egalitarianism. Well, you trace out the argument to its logical conclusion. He's saying, you know, unless women can be pastors, they can't fulfill the Great Commission. Yeah. So therefore, you know, we're sidelining fifty percent of our convention. Well, just think about that for a few more seconds. Like only one or two percent of our convention are pastors to begin with. Uh, you don't have to be a pastor already, even if you're a man, to be doing the Great Commission. And to say that you have to be a pastor to do the Great Commission, uh, I think, is undermining the very point he's trying to make to begin with. Oh, absolutely. If we really were going to follow this logic out, you'd have to be ordaining everybody to get them involved. Uh, in That's the Great right. Commission. And, and, and you'd have to be designating everybody doing the work of, of pastors in that sense. And so so this it really doesn't work. I, I don't think it's a very compelling argument. The other thing that struck me about it, uh, he, he says it is so you know manifestly clear from the Great Commission. Well, it kind of makes him a, a better reader of the Great Commission than the Apostle Paul, who did 
find restrictions for the office of pastor. I mean, Paul had Matthew 28 too. You know, he, Paul had uh, Christ's words of the Great Commission, and he still is giving that instruction in 1 Timothy 2.12. So in some ways, Warren is saying that he's reading the Great Commission better than the Apostle Paul. And the other thing, though, that I, I found really striking from that interview with Russell Moore, and I thought this was really a headline-making kind of a revelation, Warren says that he really came to these views three years ago during COVID. So what he's arguing is we need to change our convention practice and arguably orthodox practice for 2,000 years, Baptist practice for the last five, 600 years, um, to conform to this opinion that Rick Warren's been holding for three years. Yeah, it's really, it's kind of astonishing, actually, because this view is so new to him. You know, you would think that if you, I mean, he knows uh, very well what our convention believes about um, the ministry and about the pastorate. He knows full well what the Baptist faith and message says. He also knows that the Baptist faith and message, he's out of step with the Baptist faith and message. And that Saddleback is out of step with the Baptist faith and message. So it's not like that's a, a mystery to him or there's some interpretive difficulty on that score. He just thinks that we all need to change. He just thinks that it's wrong that the Baptist faith and message says what it does. And, you know, I would think that the wisest course in that kind of a situation would be just sort of walk away quietly, um, you know, not make a stir and... You know, just understand that you don't you don't have the same beliefs anymore with the people that you formerly cooperated with. But for whatever reason, he wants to uh, make an issue of this with the convention. He wants to challenge the status, and he wants Southern Baptists to change. He wants us to change what our convictions are when it comes to what the Bible says about the qualifications for pastor. And um, I, I really don't think Southern Baptists are going to go along with that. I want to get to the proposals before the convention, you know, next week, and maybe even hear some of your thoughts of what you hope to that the convention actually does about about the situation. But one other argument that Warren seems to be making about this issue is he's he's conceiving of the uh, the word pastor, or even really the the role of pastor as a spiritual gift and not a ecclesial office. Can you speak to that argumentation? Why why does that ultimately fail? In a New Testament reading, yeah. So he is wanting to treat the language of the Bible that talks about pastoring as different from the language of the Bible that talks about eldering and overseeing, or eldering and bishoping. Okay. And um, now, traditionally, here's what Baptists have held. Traditionally, Baptists have held that there's two offices in the church: the office of elder, pastor, overseer, and deacon. Okay. Now, I say the office of elder, pastor, overseer, because the evidence in the New Testament is that there's one leadership office, but there's three different ways that the New Testament will refer to that office. Each of those three different ways, they, they, they mean something a little bit different, but they have the same referent. So when you read, for example, in Ephesians 4, it talks about God has given to the church some apostles, some, ev some evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And it uses the word pastor there. Pastor is um, is shepherd terminology, poimen in, in Greek. 
And the shepherd terminology shows up mainly in the New Testament in this connection as a verb, poimino. But shepherding is something that's deeply rooted in imagery from the Old Testament. You know, uh, um, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus himself says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. And so when we talk about pastor, we're talking really about shepherd. That's the shepherd terminology. And what does a shepherd do? A shepherd leads, he protects, and he provides. How do you know that? Well, just go read what Jesus says in John 10. Go read uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why? Because he provides for me. He leads me beside uh, still waters. Um, so it, it's leadership, protection, and, and provision that you see shepherds giving to their flocks. That metaphor of the shepherd is now transferred over in the New Testament to refer to who the leader of the church is, right? And some people are called to be pastors. And the orientation of the pastor is towards the entire flock, not part of the flock. So what's interesting, though, is that that, that, that term pastor has a rich um, linkage with the Old Testament and with the rest of Scripture, okay, so that we know what, what a what, what shepherds are supposed, supposed to do. But what's interesting in the New Testament is that there are other words to refer to that one office. And in fact, the other words are more frequent than, than the word pastor. So if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, for example, you'll see the Apostle Paul talking about the qualifications for elder. And in uh, 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says it's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach and so on. Then in First Timothy chapter 5, it says that let the elders who rule well. So Timothy uses the word overseer and elder to refer to the one office of leadership. But it gets really clear when you look at the book of Titus in chapter 1, where it says, Paul says, for this reason I left you in Crete that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city. And then it says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. So it's clear that Paul is using el the word elder and overseer to refer to the same office of, of leadership. Now, they're referring to the same office. They mean kind of different things. An elder is emphasizing a person's spiritual maturity. That's what an elder is, somebody's older in the faith, mature in the faith. And uh, overseer is emphasizing like the managerial responsibilities that go along with this office. You oversee the flock. Um, but you can tell that they're referring to the same office. Um, when first Peter, when Peter talks about this in First Peter, um, he says, First Peter chapter five, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you, same word that Paul uses. As your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. There's your pastor terminology. Poimino, poimain is the noun, but this is the verb. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And there's our overseer language. Episcopos is the noun. Here, episcopo is the verb. It's the same language. You've got all three terms together. Elder, pastoring, overseeing all right there together. And so it's clear through multiple, I could show you the same thing from uh, the book of Acts where Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders. He brings all 
that Luke there brings all three concepts together. So you've got three different biblical authors, Peter, Luke, Paul, all of them using the shepherd, using the pastor, elder, overseer language to refer to one office. Now, maybe if you're tuning into this podcast, you didn't want to get this deep into the weeds. <laughs> I think it's important for us to get this deep in the weeds because um, this is an ecclesiological problem before it's a gender problem. Because what Warren is proposing is that pastoring is a gift, not an office. Southern Baptists believe there is one office of leadership in the church, and that is the office of elder, pastor, overseer. If you say that pastoring is a gift, not an office, you're actually making another third office. You're making an office of pastor, this other office of elder overseer, that'd be a second office, and then you have the third office of, of deacon. So we haven't even started talking about men and women yet, and he's not in keeping with the Baptist faith, the message on that point. Now, his argument, though, is that because pastoring is a gift and not an office, um, is that you know women can therefore be pastors. They're just exercising their gift of pastoring. But you'll notice that the way that they're deploying this in their church is it's they're really just holding the same office of leadership, just at a variety of different levels. You know, this gets to my point earlier about Warren kind of making all kinds of arguments and trying to see which one sticks. It seems like part of what he's saying is we just want to be able to exist under the current regime as a pastor, kind of leave us alone, don't disfellowship us, let us ordain women, you don't have to. But then also he's making these arguments sometimes where he's having a problem with the current Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Sometimes he's citing statistics about decline after, you know, BFM 2000 comes into force, you know, with respect to our missionary forces and all these kinds of things. But again, I think it's important for us to point that to point to the fact that the BFNM 2000 is not uh, an innovation in the way that Baptists have thought about this exact issue about the the office of pastor. In fact, you can pull up a side by side between the 1925 confession, the 1963 confession, and the 2000 confession, and in 1925. The Baptist Faith and Message says that its scriptural offices, the church's scriptural offices, are bishops or elders and deacons. And then you fast forward to 1963, and it says the church's scriptural offices are pastors and deacons. And right there, you see the exact substitution, the understanding, the ecclesiological understanding that that's one office. It's, it's the office of pastor or elder bishop, according to 1925, and deacon is the other scriptural office. And then 2000 is just using that same exact language. But what Warren is proposing here is a third office. You have elder and deacon and then this role of pastor. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's the way I understand it. He says it's a gift, not an office, but he's still calling them pastors. And it's not the same thing as being an elder or an overseer. So um, he's saying a gift, not an office, but it's still being treated like one. So um, that, that's where I'm seeing the incompatibility on that point. So getting to what's before the Southern Baptist Convention next week, there's been several proposals uh, heading into the convention. One of them is uh, Mike Law's amendment that he introduced last year that may or may not come to the floor for a vote. What exactly is uh, Law's amendment trying to get at? He's trying to specify in his amendment that um, if a church has a woman serving as pastor of any kind— then that would not be a church that's in friendly cooperation with the convention. 
just trying to specify that um, even if your church is, you know, putting a pastoral title on an associate pastor, that would still be out of keeping with uh, a female associate pastor, excuse me. Um, that would still be out of keeping with what the Baptist faith, the message says. And, and really, uh, theologically, that's correct, right? I mean, we, a lot of churches will have, sen- like our church, we, we have a senior pastor, we have associate pastors, but we don't believe that those are two different offices, right? Um, we think that those are, we've kind of, we're divvying up responsibilities, but we're not saying that they're more offices than one. And so the Baptist faith, the message doesn't get into all that. It just says there's one office of leadership. However, you divvy it up beyond that in associate or senior positions, it's total, you know, freedom. Um, but there's freedom as far as the churches are concerned. And it's not a point of cooperation. But the issue is whoever is serving in an office of pastor would need to be a man as qualified by Scripture. And um, some people have said, well, it's not clear in the Baptist faith and message. Really, we think that the word pastor refers only to senior pastors. And the law amendment is meant to clarify, no, we're talking about one office of leadership, whether you're talking about senior positions or associate positions. So he's he's aiming at clarification in, in that amendment. Um, I've written publicly about that amendment in support of it. Um, my own view is that I don't think the amendment's necessary in this sense. Um, I think that we have all the clarity that we need in the current structure because anybody who knows the history of the Baptist faith and message and just what Baptists believe understands that um, that pastor refers to anybody holding that office, whether senior associate or otherwise. Can we drill down on that point just really quickly from the Baptist faith and message 2000, just to spell it out as clearly as possible. You know, 2000 says the church's scriptural offices, officers rather, are pastors and deacons. That means there's two scriptural offices. It seems like the people that are arguing that there's kind of the senior pastor, and then there's other pastors that sort of function underneath that this confession is not addressing. It it, it proposes a third office, is that that correct? They don't necessarily say this explicitly, but it would imply a third office right? that is you know, not the office of pastor. So again, we're back to the ecclesiological problem before the gender problem thing, right. if you go down that road. Um, so that's what you mean by you don't see laws amendment as necessary because you think that the Baptist faith and message as it is now is sufficiently clear. Properly understood, yeah, properly understood, you know, according to what Baptists have always believed. There's a history behind the language, and you can't, you know, rip this thing out of its out of its context, Okay. So um, there, there really is only one office of leadership within the church, according to Southern Baptists, and it's the office of pastor. And it's a totally a matter of prudential freedom to churches how they allot responsibility among pastors after that. But the one office of leadership is pastor, no matter how many of them you have, senior associates or whatever. Um, so the law amendment is aimed at that. I think we already have clarity if you properly understand it. Now, I've come out in favor of the law amendment because... Some people have said that it's not clear, and my view is is that it's there's no harm in adding clarity to clarity if it will help some people right. to understand what's already there in, intended. But it would so so that's that's my view. But I, I don't think that it's if you're reading the documents correctly that's necessary. And in fact, uh, we have all that we need in our governing documents now to deal with 
um, any issues in this area. And that's, we're seeing that already with the, the Saddleback um, issue. So, um, but again, I'm happy to add clarity to clarity. I'll probably speak in favor of the amendment at the convention. If I can get to a microphone, I was, I was planning on trying to speak in favor of it. Um, I think it just reinforces what it already says. Um, but yeah, so that the law amendment is definitely on the, and we should clarify that the law amendment is not an amendment to the confession. It's an, a constitutional amendment constitutional to the amendment. Southern Baptist Convention's That's constitution. Correct. Yeah. And another thing I we should probably say is, you know, the law amendment was introduced last year as a motion, kind of apart from the Saddleback issue. So, you know, people that haven't been paying attention to the Southern, Southern Baptist Convention might see these things as maybe the law amendment as a response to no, Saddleback's it's, appeal. But it's, it's really, it's this separate. conversation has been happening in the convention, and we're hoping for clarity one way or another outside of, uh, on the other side of, of this convention. Yeah. You know, I think how the convention deals with the Saddleback question is the far and away more important issue here. Um, I think it's it's way more important that we get that right than, than anything else. I think brothers can have prudential disagreements about the best way to apply our doctrinal statement to the to the convention. So I, I like Mike Law's propo- proposal. I think it's good. We have some other people that have made some other proposals, like the guys at B21. Uh, Bart Barber um, has made his his own alternative proposal public. And you know, I'll say all those guys are complementarians. I, I think they want the same outcome. They want us to have a convention of cooperating churches. And they would even say the same things that we're saying about yeah. the confession here, the BFM 2000, and the, the proper interpretation of that. No, I think we have like massive theological de- agreement uh, amongst all three. So praise the Lord for that. So you, you are seeing some prudential disagreements about the best way to apply that within the convention. And so, you know, I want to be, I, I just want to be working with brothers to think through the best way to get to this. I, I'm going to support the law amendment. And if it passes, you know, wonderful, great. If it doesn't, then I'm going to look brothers in the face and we're going to, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, try to figure this thing out, you know, um, and we'll do it in good faith and uh, believe in the best about each other. That, that's what I'm hoping and praying for. So in your mind, going into next week, kind of ranking concerns here, uh, the Saddleback is sort of front burner. We need to really have clarity and, and deal with that properly at this convention the next issue is what do we do going forward for addressing like, you know, similar cases? Yeah. Do we need any structural changes? That's the big question. Right. The law amendment is one proposal. There's some others that could come up. Um, so, you know, I, as I said, I think status, what we have right now gives us everything we need. If everybody's properly interpreting our governing documents. And, um, so yeah, we'll see what happens on that score. So that's the issue of women pastors before the Southern Baptist Convention, but there's other things that are happening, not only within the convention, but in the wider world. Specifically, Denny, you have a resolution before the convention, or at least we hope that's going to be before the convention, that you submitted with Andrew Walker. Is that correct? Yeah, Andrew Walker and I um, worked together on pinning a resolution dealing with transgender identities and so-called gender-affirming care that has been so much in the news lately. And anybody listening to this who's been paying attention at all to what's going on in the culture knows that there's been a 
enormous increase in the last five to 10 years of minor children, especially adolescent children who are identifying as non-binary or transgender, and then going to a gender clinic, going to a school counselor, whatever, and eventually entering into a path, what they call gender affirming care, which means, um, first of all, you would have a social transition. You adopt pronouns that don't match your, um, natal sex. Um, so you do opposite pronouns. Um, yeah, maybe take on a new name, start dressing differently. You do a social transition. After that happens, eventually, um, if you go visit like a gender clinic or a doctor, they could prescribe to you puberty blockers if you're young enough to halt your puberty, which has long-term potentially devastating effects on a, a person if they halt their own puberty. They're told that they can reverse that later. It's not really true. Um, and it'll have long-term effects. And then after, if, if they do puberty blocking long enough, they, they might even get on testosterone. And which is, if you're a female, you would get on testosterone, so an opposite sex hormone, to sort of give you masculine, masculinized characteristics. That, too, has devastating consequences over time, changes your voice, um, will render a person infertile if they take it long enough. Um, so they'll, they'll do opposite sex hormones. And then finally, the quote-unquote gender-affirming care um, includes taking away and destroying healthy body parts, particularly sexual organs. And so you'll, you've heard of more and more adolescent, minor children, young girls, having their a double mastectomies. So they're having their breasts removed. That's not reversible. So these are tremendously destructive interventions that are happening, all of it based on the fiction of transgender identities. And so we wrote a... Um, a resolution that we hope the resolutions committee will consider consider and bring out that would be a direct opposition to these medical interventions that people are performing on, especially children with these transgender identities. We're opposing it for everybody, but um, right now the problem in the culture we're seeing so much is with the, the, the children. So hopefully that resolution will come out and we'll get a chance to vote on it. Uh, we'll see. It seems like this issue is one of the ones that most uh, immediately kind of demonstrates the red-blue divide in this country. So I think I saw the state of California passing laws that would take children away from their parents that don't allow these transitions and these uh, interventions to happen, whereas red states are going the opposite direction and forbidding and even outlawing these practices does your resolution speak to that? Yeah, so it, the, I think what you're referring to is this issue of sanctuary cities and sanctuary states where if a child has parents that that don't want to let the child transition or go through these procedures, if the child runs away and ends up in one of these sanctuary domains or states or cities, um, they don't necessarily have to be returned to their parents, hmm. so, something along those lines. And, um, and so you're seeing that. So yes, we do speak directly to that in the resolution. We're, we're trying to say, we're trying to bear witness to the truth, but also say, look, there's some policies that are being enacted in certain uh, municipalities and states which are not good and are not good for parents, not good for parental rights, not good for children. And uh, so, yeah, we're speaking directly to that. And, you know, I, I should say that we were inspired in part to do this by um, the people an effort in the PCA, I think they're going to speak to this as mm -hmm. well. 
And so I look forward to seeing something coming out of the PCA too. Resolutions, we should say, they're non-binding on Southern Baptists as a convention, but they really are a way for the convention to speak to not only our people, but to the world on what Southern Baptists believe. And still today, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the world, and uh, what a blessing it would be to be able to speak the truth in love on this exact issue where the culture is is pushing so hard. Yeah, absolutely. And really, on, on both of these issues, it's so important to have a clear, um, common set of beliefs in order to do the Great Commission together. Because really, at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do as Southern Baptists. I mean, we're, we're not like other denominations. We're not a top-down structure. We're a bottom-up structure. The, the National Convention doesn't tell any church what to do. The churches tell the National Convention what to do through our annual meetings when the messengers show up and vote. But what, what that means is, is that every church that's a part of the Southern Baptist Convention is voluntarily coming together to cooperate with people who are like-minded for the purposes of the Great Commission. Um, and that effort gets undermined when we start having theological differences. Um, that are significant enough to, to rise to the level of our of our attention, and so that's why you know when it when we're talking about female pastors, um, it, it's important for us to be all on the on the same page because if we're going to ch- plant churches together, internationally or domestically, you're either going to have female pastors or not, you know, and so we we have to have clarity on this as a convention um, to move forward together. And then we also need to be bearing witness faithfully on what it means to be a man and a woman. Um, that That is really sort of the foundational concept. And if you don't have that right, everything downstream from that, including these other gender questions, are going to be wrong. So we just want to bear faithful witness in the world. We want people to know Christ. And what I'm hoping is that you know on these issues, as the Southern Baptist Convention deals with it this year, we'll have more clarity and more faithful witness as a result. We don't have time to get into it on this podcast. We've done so on others, but there really is a connection between those two issues that we've discussed here today. Uh, What is a man? What is a woman? What's God's design for men? What's God's design for women? And in both arenas, we just want to point to God's good word, God's good design, and continue to hold that up as our standard. So to those Southern Baptists that are listening, we hope to see you next week in New Orleans. To those that are not Southern Baptists, would you please pray for us as we consider these things that we might give honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.